Welcome back uh, to the Earthspace Executive Podcast. I am, uh, I'm really happy to have uh, Brett Crozier with me. Brett is a uh, former commanding officer of the USS Theodore Roosevelt, uh, F-18 pilot, lifelong uh, career naval officer, um, and now author of the book, Surf When You Can. And uh, he's got some great, uh, he's got six great points in Surf When You Can, and we'll talk about that at the end. So, uh, Brett, thanks for, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Craig. Happy to be here and appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. So a couple of years ago, you were a really famous guy. Yeah, I think there's, uh, that's how life works sometimes, I guess, right? You find yourself in a spotlight and and you you deal with it. You know, it was a couple of years ago that I was the commanding officer of the Theodore Roosevelt. And we were kind of the, the front line on the battle with COVID, as they say. And we were figuring stuff out and kind of got in a position of extremists where, you know, yeah. as a le- leader of the ship, we were kind of hitting some roadblocks that uh, required me to kind of take a stand, I think, for the, on behalf of the sailors that I was entrusted with. And, and that led to all kinds of attention. Let's talk about something different, though. I don't want to talk about this. I want to talk cool. So I want to talk, talk great Navy stuff here. Yeah, let's do that. I, let's, that talk about, let's talk about commanding an aircraft carrier. Yeah, we've got people. I, I talk to people every day. They're, you know, they're, they're working small businesses, mid-sized businesses, big businesses. They're trying to figure out. And obviously, becoming the commanding officer of an aircraft carrier is a, you know, that's a 25-year evolution to yeah. get there. I mean, what, what, yeah, one, how many, yeah, one half of one half of 1% of the officers in the Navy get to ever do that? Yeah, it's, it, it is a unique and, and awesome job. I mean, for many reasons, and it takes a while to get there. And, and obviously you have to want it and your family has to be willing to support you. But, you know, just, just look at the life in the week of a commanding officer of aircraft carrier. I was lucky enough, I flew helicopters at the start of my career, fighters later. So as a, you know, I, I considered my my best week as a CEO underway was I could fly a helicopter one day and talk with the air wing and and fly around the ship. And then two days later, I'd jump on a F-18 and and fly a mission around the ship. And then next day we'd, you know, I'd be on the bridge of the ship and we'd pull alongside and get thousands or you know, millions of gallons of gas from a, another ship for our fighters. And so there was a lot, always a lot going on. And it took uh, 5,000 people to do it, but uh, definitely the pinnacle and and the best job I ever had in the Navy by far. We were talking about before we, before we hit record, the leadership style needed, you know, you, you got a young crew, like really young crew. You've got a, a variety of jobs going from the glamour of the aviators, the glamorous jobs that the aviators get to the, the young kid, chip and paint and keeping everybody motivated. Yeah. I mean, you're figure your average sailor on a aircraft carrier is, you know, somewhere in the early twenties. Right. So they're young and they're motivated though. Right. That's, what's awesome is when you can have a crew of 5,000 and they're all motivated to not always, but I mean, they're, they're there of their own will and they're, and they're excited about what they're doing, but you're doing some incredibly complex tasks. You know, the best analogy for those that have never been on aircraft carriers it's like running a city. I mean, anything a city of 5,000 people needs, you have. Um, that's from power generation, which happens to come from two nuclear reactors on board, to water, to sewage, to food, logistics, engineering, medical, dental, legal. You have your own media team. You have your own airport, of course, on the flight deck, which is the whole reason you have an aircraft carrier. And uh, and you can go wherever you want in the world in pretty quick order. So, um, and a complex, amazing organization and it takes a lot. It takes 5,000 people. When you find yourself there after, in my case, you know, after 25 plus years in the Navy, you know, you're definitely challenged in ways you haven't been challenged before in terms of, a, you know, responsibilities of a leader at that level and that magnitude. You know, I knew how to fly helicopters. I knew how to fly fighters. 
I'd, you know, I had command of a squadron. I knew how to drive ships actually, you know, cause you'd go through a whole training pipeline and you have command, I had command of the Blue Ridge in Japan. So you'd know the fundamentals of running a smaller ship, but you know, and you know about naval reactors cause you go through the school at a much later time in your life to figure it all out. And that's a requirement, you know, in the Navy that you understand and you can sign for those reactors. But then when you finally get there, I think, you know, this is when you really kind of understand what it takes to run a large organization. You know a lot, you know all those finer details like we just talked about, but but you're not gonna do it yourself. You can't, it's impossible. You know, I think Colin Powell said once, you know, you delegate till you're uncomfortable and then you delegate some more. If you are the CEO of an aircraft carrier and you do not know how to delegate and follow up and hold people accountable, but if you do not know how to delegate, you will drive yourself crazy and it'll be miserable. I found that, you know, I learned in short order, it was kind of my style all the way through my career is that I'd like to find the right level of leadership and, and empower them and give them the responsibility and the authority they needed to do their jobs and delegate and then kind of step back and watch. And, and sometimes they make mistakes and you were always there to keep them in check. So those mistakes didn't result in some larger catastrophe, but, but I was, I was never let down. I mean, aircraft carry of 20 different HODs or heads of department, you know, one's in charge of the reactor, one's the engineer, one's in charge of supply, one's in charge of all aviation. So it's, it's broken down pretty well, but you have to just, you know, build the culture of support. You have to delegate to them. You have to ensure that culture allows them to work smoothly together. And then when things are running well and, and, and things are aligned like that, and you built that positive culture that supports them and they feel empowered to do their job, then I'm telling you, it is, there's no better job in the Navy. And it's, and there's days when it wasn't, it wasn't really hard. I mean, you got to sit back and watch them do what they're supposed to be doing. And, and those are the days you sit back on the bridge and put your feet up and just watch it happen. And, and just uh, watch it all happen. it was pretty neat. And then, and that's, and that's, you know, obviously for leaders, it's crucial too, because, you know, at, at times you're the only one looking downrange. You're the only one looking two, four, six years down the road, or even sometimes a couple months down the road on where the ship needs to be, preparations for future deployments, uh, you know, thinking about stuff like about the crew. So it takes that kind of culture, I think, to give me, gave me the white space I needed to be able to step back and kind of think some of those bigger thoughts and not worry about the day-to-day. So, and I think that's true in any organization of that size. You have to be able to delegate and you have to hopefully have the right people to delegate to, to empower them. And then as a CEO or CEO of an aircraft carrier, you have to then also use that time wisely to, to provide that strategic guidance of where you're trying to go as an organization. So at what point you've got 20 department heads, so 20 direct reports, which is a lot, and you got to trust each and every one of them and, and, and trust the fact that they've been trained well. At what point do you start to trust them? And what point do you start to really trust them? Because you, know, and, and you come into industry, you get a lot of changeover. Yeah, I think people hire people and, and it's yeah six to 12 months of a trust building process before they actually yeah. you know, start to gel. Well, so you're right. I mean, they are well-trained and they're they're handpicked and, and to get in those positions, they're generally some of the top people in their respective community. So supply corps sends only their best or the medical corps sends only their top doctor. So my, you know, my attitude was I was going to start right off the bat by trusting them. I was going to trust them until they proved otherwise. Um, and I gave them the benefit of the doubt because it, because otherwise it does take time to build that trust from scratch. Right. So if I went into with the idea, we were at a, you know, a point where there was no trust at all. I mean, that would have been a miserable six months and 
And I would have, you know, you'd have to take away that trust they already had with the previous commanding officer. And you'd have to, you know, take away the authority they already had to get their job, their day-to-day job done. So my strategy was to go in and basically, okay, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the benefit of the doubt. You guys are here because you were handpicked. I used to say, you know, I said, you guys are handpicked. You're the top of your community. I said, I could probably, you know, we could probably take over a small country with a group like this, or we could run a small country because they really were that talented. And, you know, so we might not have all the answers, but we can figure it out. And I told him, I said, I'll trust you until I, until you prove otherwise. I can compare it to what I do now in a nonprofit world as the uh, chief operating officer of a pretty large nonprofit, but, you know, and, and a nonprofit that I was not familiar with. We deal with things like mental health and substance abuse for veterans. And we can talk more about that later, but I'm coming into a new world that, that I'm not as familiar with. And if I came in and immediately took away all the trust that uh, my predecessor had with the direct reports, man, things would come to a screeching halt. Uh, and that would not allow us to achieve our mission. So again, much like the military, you come in and, and you give them the benefit of the doubt, then you monitor. I mean, you tell them your goals and you tell them what you expect and you have to be clear about your vision and, and when you want things reported to you. But I think, I do think sometimes people come in and make the mistake of, assuming no trust or make them prove that they need that trust. And I, I try to approach it the other way. I'll give you the trust you deserve right now. And, and then you, until you prove otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, I won't take that back. And it worked for me. It worked. I was never let down. What about delegation? You were talking about yeah, delegation. Yeah. The, the, the need for leaders to delegate. Yeah, absolutely. The, essential. The, the right? curse of the micromanager, the curse of the micromanager. You make yeah. yourself crazy and everybody else crazy too. Yeah. Cause I mean, we know that, you know, the small details matter in any organization, the small details, the small ball of baseball, as they say, you've got to get that right. But it doesn't mean you have to micromanage. I mean, you, you can, I think you can pay attention to the details of any large organization. In today's era, you have things like dashboards and data reporting that allow you to do that much more easily than before. We have email, which for good or bad, allows you to monitor things way down beneath you as an executive sometimes. But that's, that's part of that trust thing, right? You delegate to somebody because for many reasons, one, maybe you don't want to do it. But two, it's because, you know, if you delegate right and you give somebody the authority that comes with that responsibility, which essentially is what delegation is, then they're going to own it, right? And you teach ownership. So you can't just give away tasks you don't want to do. You know, you, you have to, with that task comes responsibility, that delegation, right? Comes responsibility. Mm-hmm. And with that responsibility, they need the authority to execute. And that could be financial. You know, in my current organization, if I delegate a program to somebody and I say, you're in charge of this program, I better, that better come with people and money necessary to execute that. And then I also say, I'm going to hold you responsible. Here's what I expect. Um, But if you do that and you delegate now, it's, now it's, they're going to own it. They're going to own it and do the best job they can, no doubt. And they're not going to be coming to you every time they want to buy something. They're not going to come to you every time they want to make a personnel move. You know, you delegate that level and you give them the authority and the responsibility and the power they need to execute the authority, then then they're generally going to step up. And that's so that's what I think. Yet people have to understand delegation. It's not just getting rid of things you don't want to do. It's giving the task to the right people, giving those tools they need to succeed. And then as a leader, you just have to have your checkpoints so you can make sure they're on track or you make them tell them when you want to be reported to. But then it gives you as a leader the free time to to think those strategic thoughts, to decide where the ship should be going or where the organization should be going. But if you don't, especially in today's era where everybody's a phone call or an email or a text away, oh, wow. you can micromanage like you read about. And that is just, then I'm not being a leader. I'm not being an executive. I'm just being a program director. And I'm, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm basically trying to run it all. And I think that is, 
that is never the recipe for success in any organization inside or outside the military. Yeah, that's, um, I just did a search for a CEO of a small company and the board was, you know, the, there was one thing the board was talking about is the founder of the company who's going to be exiting never understood the requirement, the, the importance of finding somebody to, to, to get him out of the weeds. Yeah. So that he gets the strategic vision and now he's selling his company. He was so far in the weeds, he, you know, the, the strategic vision couldn't be found. And if you're too, yeah, and, too, and I've, if you're, I've if seen companies here that, you know, where a CEO, it's the way this is set up, the CEO has all the direct reports coming to him. And, you know, I argue this is where you need to execute. If you're big enough and you can afford it, having a COO or having a, you know, a CFO, that, let them handle those direct reports. And if you're truly the CEO, you can, you know, you have one more layer between you. Again, it takes revenue to do that and be able to afford that. But even in the nonprofit world, you know, we're set up now where you do, you have the CEO and she's got a CFO and I'm the CEO and that gives her that layer she needs. And, and she understands what happens every day. She's been there before. She's been doing it for a long time, but she's given me, she's delegated the operations to me as an example. And then I there in turn can use my directors underneath me and delegate to them as required and provide that. But, but I think you're right. It's too easy in today's era, particularly maybe for founders, right? Where they're, it's like, I don't know. I mean, founders are like raising your kid, right? It's just, it's hard to let your kid go. You're, it's, you know, and that's the, the, the curse of the founder uh, is it's hard to let go. It's your kid. So that's I exactly, can see I can tell you I've how many COOs I've placed and they all come in, they quit six, you know, they'll look, you know, 12 months later, they'll quit and they'll say, he never let me do anything or she never let me, she never, yeah. you know, never would let go. Um, yeah, I still remember the conversation I had with a fella and he was, uh, yeah, I think it was, you know, it's, it was one of the, you know, one of the civilian aggressor squad and he was the COO and he said they never would. Yeah. They wanted process. They wanted procedures. I put a process of procedures in, but they didn't yeah. want to follow them. So I'm like, Hey, look, if you guys don't want to do what you hired me to do, there's no sense in me being here right and now. He's a very successful CEO somewhere else. Right. And he's done really well. So it's, it's like pushing yeah. on the rope a little bit. And it's, and it's, you know, I always say too, it's good when you're the CEO in those situations, because you, it's a good reminder that, you know, when you elevate to a CEO position somewhere else that, you know, remember what it felt like and remember how you really, you know, if you're going to hire somebody to be a COO or CFO, well then let them do their job, you know, give them the authority they need, give them the resources and then step back and let them do it and don't micromanage. Sometimes easier said than done, I'm sure. So you were, you were very popular commanding officer. I mean, your, your crew had a lot of, had a, held you in very high regard. Yeah, I, I had a good were team. You, I, uh, were, you down I really, in the, were you down in the trenches with them a lot? And kind of, yeah, what was your, yeah, what was the style that you, uh, you brought to that team? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I, I think, I don't know that I did anything other than just try to talk to everybody like peers. You know, if I could have gone walked around the ship without a, without a rank or, you know, uniform that identified me, I probably would have done that just because I thought that was always sometimes the best way to get good, honest feedback from the folks that you, you work with. But I think I learned as a kid, like from my dad who, who ran a small company that, you know, you're, no one's any better than anybody else. And you might, you might be lucky enough to find yourself in charge and, and in a position where you're, you know, you're leading others and your number one, number responsibility is to take care of others. Right. Now, I, I, particularly in the military, it's, you know, you take care of the folks so they can do their mission because you obviously can't do it all the time, but that's part of a larger discussion about, you know, military missions. But yeah, I think, I think the leader's number responsibility is to take care of their folks. And the best way you can take care of your sailors or your team is to know what they need, know what the barriers are, know what the challenges are. And to do that, you have to just have a style of communication that's open, 
I mean, I had an open door policy, even on the carrier. I kept my door open, you know, unless I was in my room sleeping, I'd, I'd have my office door open and, you know, you'd, you'd get young sailors who'd peek in just to see what the, the captain's office looked like. And then I'd always call them in and, Hey, what's going on? And we just, I have them sit down. I, you know, the advantage of having being the carrier CEO is you have a kitchen and a cook right next, you know, adjacent to your office and, and, um, and they made cookies. They made like, I don't know, hundred cookies a day. And, and obviously I, I could eat about half of that per day. Um, but I truly tried to get rid of the cookies. So I used to always bring people in and just randomly find a sailor and bring them in, give them some cookies and, and, and just talk about what's going on. And, but if you talk to people, you know, like you're sitting out for dinner, just, you know, and you're not, and you kind of get rid of the rank a little bit. I mean, they, they know who you are, right. They know the authority, the power that comes with a position of commanding officer, but so that never has to come up, right. That never, it's already understood. So you can communicate with them in a direct way and, and just hear what's going on and, and joke with them about sports or joke with them about, you know, where they're from or talk about their families. I just, I, I always, I felt like I, you know, I know they appreciate it, but I felt like I really learned a lot from that. You know, it was maybe a two-way street, but I felt like I was always learning more from them than they probably learned from me just because they got to understand, you know, everybody's background and, and how varied and diverse it is on a ship that size, you know, with, I think we had, you know, we had sailors from every state in the country. We had sailors from overseas that had, you know, were working on their, you know, their mm -hmm. citizenship. So they came from foreign countries and we had them in certain rates. So pretty remarkable. So you can learn a lot. I mean, there's, yeah. there's, you just have to be open to it and you have to be approachable enough, I guess, to, to talk to them in a way that they want to share stuff with you. So I don't, that was, that was my secret sauce if there was one, but I think more than anything, I just think I had, I was blessed with a good crew that, that understood what we were there to do. That's awesome. So let's, let's talk about something else you mentioned. You started out with helicopters. Yeah. Age 60s. Yeah. So 60 Bravos, uh, you know, the Seahawk, you know, the, the Seahawk variant of the Blackhawk. And uh, my first duty station was at Barber's Point, Hawaii. Okay. So they're on the Southwest corner of Oahu with the HSL 37 Easy Riders. And I tell you what, there's no better first tour for a naval aviator that, you know, grew up in California, loved to surf, loved the water. And so, yeah, my wife and I headed off there after flight school and we spent three years in Barber's Point, Hawaii and, and loved everything about it. How'd you make the transition to F-18s? Talk about that. And then, and then talk yeah. about what is, you, you make that transition all of a sudden now you're a new guy, even though you're, 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 yeah, you're a little bit more experienced. You're still a new guy. Yeah. So, and I'll have to be feel? fair for all the, all the helicopter folks out there. I absolutely loved flying helicopters. Like flying a helicopter is like you and two buddies jumping in a truck and just heading out. Your mission changes every day. I mean, you're flying helicopters around Hawaii. You're all around the world. It was awesome. I had a great time and you're part of a team. And uh, so every helicopter flight was like a road trip. So when the opportunity came, you know, two years later to transition to, to fighters and I knew I, I, it was an opportunity I didn't want to pass up. It was something I'd always thought about from the, you know, the day I was 16 and a movie called Top Gun came out and it always seemed like another exciting opportunity. So so I didn't, you know, and I knew if I didn't get it, I would have been fine flying helicopters. I absolutely loved everything about it. But yeah, so fast forward now, you know, I went through flight school the first time, uh, not married, no kids. I got picked up for a transition and that's just based on kind of needs of the Navy. You know, they had, if you have more folks than you need in one community and less than you need in another, then they, they open up the, the spigot, so to speak, and you can apply and they look at your, your record and your performance to date. And so I was uh, lucky enough to get picked up to go fly F-18s. So now you go back to flight school. So now I'm much more senior. I was, I think it's, you know, halfway through the transition, I'm a lieutenant commander select. So I'm much senior than even the instructors that I had. 
I'm married and we have two kids. Um, so my perspective on flight school the second time was a little bit different in a good way. And that I was not as distracted by all the things that you often are distracted by in Pensacola, which is like the beach and the sun and the fishing opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, so I, I had, but I had to really focus because I think fl- going from flying something that's crew concept, helicopter with, you know, a couple of folks there to help you out to now you're single seat trying to learn how to fly relatively the T-45 for me, the Goshawk, um, mm-hmm. and trying to do it all yourself. And I still have this clear vision of when I was in my, like one of my second simulators and you're, they start you off by teaching you how to fly instruments. So how, you know, knowing how to fly a jet, bad weather, navigating approaches in and out of airfields is, is critical. And in fact, it tends to be something you keep with you the rest of your career. But in helicopter, you always have another pilot. So you can delegate those responsibilities and one person can talk, one person can fly. It's, it's a, it's a much probably better environment. And a fighter, it's all you. Like you're talking on the radios, you're trying to flip through your charts, you're trying to write down frequencies. Uh, and I remember the end of the, I did okay. I remember the end of the simulator where we had simulated flying into Biloxi or something and bad weather. And and the instructor opens up the canopy and, and I've got stuff everywhere. Like <laughs> it's a yard sale of approach plates and I'm writing on grease pencil on the cockpit, on the canopy. And he's like, you know, you got to figure out how to do this a little more smoothly. I'm like, ah, I'll get there. And so like anything, the Navy's got a great training program and you focus on it and you, you know, you learn how to do it very well and safe. And so, um, you know, soon enough, I find myself in a fleet squadron flying F-18s um, as, you know, I was going through the RAG, through FRS and, and Lemoore when 9-11 kicked off. And so, you know, suddenly this huge focus on what's going to happen now and, and obviously the, the intensity and, and the seriousness of what we're doing mattered. But I find myself now in a squadron and a nugget, as we say, on their first tour, um, but also a senior in rank lieutenant commander. So it was kind of a weird dynamic. One that I that I enjoyed, one that I that I found I I did well in, but um, but it was certainly a lesson in how to be humble and how to you know, yeah. despite the fact you might be three or four years senior to your instructors or experienced lieutenants, you better treat every flight as a learning opportunity, and you better just you know open your open your eyes and your ears and listen to everything. And, and that's and that's what as you know, naval aviation is great for that. I mean, we you know we don't we don't bring our rank into the debris. We say right, you leave your rank at the door. Um, so that's it sets itself up well for that. And that, you know, as long as you remain humble and you are there to learn, then the culture is there in naval aviation to teach you. And that's that's true whether you're an ensign or you're the captain of aircraft carrier and you come back to land and the LSO has come to grade you on your landing. And a one wire is not a good pass as the captain of the carrier or as a junior officer. That's a hard position to be in, though. You know, it's, a, it's you know, you're that senior, you're that senior, more senior guy on yeah. your first tour. You've got people who are much more experienced than you. You know, it's it's yeah. it's a di- it's a different dynamic that takes a lot of emotional intelligence to navigate through both directions. You're more you're, you're, sure. you're more you're the more junior junior people are paying you the respect you deserve, but you're yeah. you know obviously respecting their experience as well. Yeah, and I think the ownership obviously ideally was on me, and that I I didn't want to ever give them an excuse to to do anything, but you know get, hold me accountable for my performance. Um, and it would be easy enough to to put a barrier up, or or you know in some cases these guys work for me in, the, in their day job, right? They work for me in their ground job, as they say. So day to day, they were following my orders. But when it came to flying, as an example, because that's where I was not as familiar, I, it kind of, re- the tables were reversed. And um, so it'd be easy enough to to put a barrier in place, even subconsciously, right? Um, and just in your mannerisms. So I always took it like, they, you know, I wanted to make sure that there were no barriers and they felt totally comfortable because that's the only way I was going to learn. And, and that's, you know, as you know, you don't stop learning there either. You know, you learn, 
I mean, that, those same lessons proved well when I was going through nuclear power school. And I'm one of two commanders in a classroom of 25 ensigns and Lieutenant JGs trying to learn physics and nuclear power and electrical engineering mm -hmm. much later in my life. And, and you get the same tests and you're held to the same standard. And, but man, you have to learn much more quickly than you remember after 25 years since you've, or 20 years since you've been in college last. It's hard to go back to that. You know, you, yeah, it, was, it really is hard to change, yeah. your, change your mindset. Did you always want to be, I mean, I run into a lot of young kids. They're like, I want to be a CEO one day. It's like, well, all right. Did you always know that you wanted to be that? Or did you just take your life kind of one step at a time and see where, you know, just did the best you could and see where. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, go back to 18 year old Brett. I was, you know, I went to the Naval Academy and with one purpose, I just wanted to fly. Like I, I didn't understand what came from beyond that. I just said, I want to go to Pensacola to fly helicopters, fighters, whatever came my way. And that was enough to get me through Naval Academy and, and get to flight school. It probably wasn't until I was later in my first squadron tour in Hawaii that I started understanding a little bit how the Navy worked and the opportunities out there. And, and it probably wasn't until I realized like I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed everything about the Navy, the travel, the adventure, feeling like you're making a difference somewhere in the world. You know, the camaraderie, the teamwork, it, it felt like a sports team most days in a squadron. And as I started getting more and more comfortable with it, I started enjoying it more and more. I, I think I started looking like, well, how do I keep doing this? Like, I could go to the airlines or I could go do something on the on outside of the Navy. And I, and I definitely had those thoughts. I mean, uh, even before the transition to fighters, to F-18s, I remember putting some serious thought into going to work in the corporate side and, and do other stuff. And, but in the end of the day, it's like, God, I really love what I'm doing. I don't know why I would do anything else. And there might be a day where I stop loving it, in which case, well, you better do something else. If you don't like what you're doing, find something else to do, I guess, or find a different way to do it. Yeah. So as I, as my ex horizon expanded and I understood what opportunities presented itself, um, you know, to me, the aircraft carrier CO was just something that was, you know, just still stood out as an incredible opportunity. And, and it probably, but again, I was a helicopter guy that didn't necessarily fly on aircraft carriers until later in my career when I transitioned. So it was a little bit later in my career that I, I remember looking at the aircraft carrier CEO, like, like this guy's like a, he's like a guy, he's an Oracle, right? He's, he's in charge of all this stuff. How does he do it? I used mm -hmm. to see that there in the North Island, I'd, I'd see the, the carrier skipper on the Nimitz mm -hmm. running around the base. And I'm like, man, how does he have time to go run? You know, how does he do that? He's got all this responsibility. And then, yeah, then fast forward, suddenly you're the CEO of the aircraft carrier. And like, how did I, you know, how did I get I here again? Do, do people look at me the same way I looked at that guy? Cause I thought he was about 80 and I thought he was, yep. you know, and untouchable, but, um, but yeah, I, so anyways, it was great opportunity. And I always said, you know, I'm going to keep doing this and as long as I'm having fun. And I had fun uh, through the TR and even my last two years after the TR, the Roosevelt, mm -hmm. I had a great time on the staff and working with more great folks in the Navy and um, retired, you know, two years after that and had fun every step of the way. I love it. Yeah, yeah, it's hard days, but Yeah. Somebody asked me, you know, what, you know, I just, my, both my twins graduated college last week and you know, somebody said, yeah, but go back to your 21, 22 year old self. What would you tell yourself? I was like, you know focus, become really good at the thing that's right in front of me. Yeah. And then, you know, just keep, you know, put all the distractions aside and just keep, keep yeah. you know, moving forward. I think it's with something that people forget is, you know, when you become the guy or the girl and what you're doing, a lot of doors open up to you, but understanding what the task in front of you is and becoming good at it is the key to that forward progress right. also. One of the, one of the things they talk about in the book is it's about small ball, right? It's the philosophy and you can attribute it to different baseball teams along the way and the go-go socks of the yesteryear. But the idea being that, you know, if you really want to 
have a good team and and be part of a good team, it's you know you're not going to fill a team with home run hitters, right? That's not what you need. And and it's about everybody doing their job and and being good at the small ball, being good at the day to day tasks, and being good at what your what your job is. And and that's you know leads to a larger you know that yeah. that's your part of the pie, and that helps a large organization. And all that cumulatively together mm-hmm. allows for great things. But in today's society, I think it's easy to get focused on the you know the the startup wonder who makes you know hundred million dollars yeah. and and yeah. funding and you know with the never and that's you know it's the Amazon it's, it's those guys work one really hard to actually do that and it's also very exceptional that you're gonna you know not have to work really hard to get there and my uh, but but know, also it's about it's also about yeah the day to day you got to be you got to yeah. be good today to be great tomorrow yeah. but all yeah. right so let's you brought it up let's talk about the book oh, yeah you got all right so I'm gonna read them here six really good points of the book. Value relationships. Let's see. Choose kindness. Choose kindness. Seek balance. Communicate effectively and clearly. Stand up for what you believe and accept responsibility. Yeah. Your action. Yeah. So I think, you know, I, one, I never, again, 18 year old Brett, I wouldn't have thought I'd wrote a book someday. Um, obviously the, the TR presented opportunity to give me a little bit of a platform and my impetus for writing the book was less about the TR. I mean, there is, yes, there's a chapter about the Roosevelt and stuff, but it's more about, I think, all the incredible things I learned about being a person, being a, being just a kind human being, being a leader uh, about life. And and it, I think it all leads to overall my philosophy on leadership. But yeah, so I, I had a really good time writing. I mean, right, it's like any project, you know, writing a book, you know, it takes, they say it takes clear thinking to to write clearly and it takes clear writing to think clearly uh or you know my my friend bolter chris bolt used to say you know written out is thought out and uh great guy and so I, yeah he's a great guy I, and so i took that to heart and and he's obviously in the book for all the positive things he taught me along the way but so right you know writing written out is thought out and and i i wanted to pay tribute to all the incredible people i served with all the fun stories i had my goal i said was someone's going to read this book and go man i didn't think about joining the navy because i didn't understand it now i understand more about it I understand all the opportunity. I understand all the adventures. I understand about people. And that young kid, that young Brett of who's 18 trying to figure out what to do in life might consider this a career path. Or someone in the Navy reads it and, and understands it, gives it maybe a broader perspective on what leaders are thinking about. But for me, you know, I guess it just comes down to, I mean, in some ways it's the golden rule, treat others how you want to be treated or when in doubt, lead with kindness, whatever, however you want to phrase it. But I found that I, and more often than not, I was successful uh, and, and many interactions because I, I try to look at it with that side of compassion. You know, it's easy to quickly judge something. It's easy to want to get angry and, and snap at somebody. But, you know, when you're a senior leader, you do that, that has a huge effect on the culture. People stop wanting to talk to you. People want to stop wanting to bring you feedback or tell you when things aren't going right. So I think you've got to be approachable. You have to lead with kindness. And I never, I never felt bad about giving someone the benefit of the doubt. But I always felt bad if I jumped to judgment and I snapped at somebody uh, in my career. And I was like, you know, I was probably a little quick to judge on that. Or, or I, you know, there was no reason for me to be angry. I also think that I think life is about relationships. I think it's, you know, our relationship right here, you and I talking, um, my relationship with guys like Bolter or your family or your friends. And so I try to tell the story of my career and my experiences through the people I met. And, it, you know, it goes all the way back to a staff job I had in Italy where I learned about, you know, teamwork from a guy named Luigi who was, you know, Italian Lieutenant Colonel and and Mm -hmm. made a point of 
dragging me down to have espresso with a couple of folks I worked with because he understood the importance of trust and teamwork, even at that level. And, and now I look at Luigi with a smile on my face because he was just, just a super friendly guy that understood fundamentally the importance of relationships and how that led to trust and how that leads to success in an organization. Um, yeah. And, I, and so there's, you know, there's, I, I tell it all, there's a bunch of chapters. I use various titles, like, you know, how to prioritize. I think one of the other ones is, you know, focus on the closest alligator, which comes to good leaders have to be able to prioritize so they can make the important decisions. I talk about small ball because I think like you and I said, it's the importance of the day-to-day mission. You know, not every, every action has to be a home run. Not every flight is, you know, launching off the carrier to get shot down, to jump in an F-14, to fly back and, you know, and celebrate, you know, uh, you know, Maverick two type of scenario, you know, that's the reality is, as you know, it's, you know, it's day in and day out. People are launching off airplane aircraft carriers and coming back and, and doing these things each and every day. And then there's sailors that are down on the, that bilges the aircraft carrier. Their sole job is to, to stare at a reactor and make sure it's operates safely. It's everybody mm-hmm. doing their part, playing the small ball that leads to the success. And I think that's always important for a leader to understand. And, you know, we've kind of touched on all the others and, and the points of delegation and, and stuff, but so, yeah, I hope, I, I hope people enjoy it. It was fun to write. It was, you know, my way to pay tribute to all the, the sailors I got to work with and, and a way to kind of tie it together based on what I thought were the, you know, the, the important lessons that I kind of distilled from my career. And, um, and I think, you know, obviously the title is surf when you can, which, uh, makes it fall outside the normal titles of probably a leadership book. And it is certainly more than a leadership book, but you know, the, the importance of that to me is that as a leader, you have to have balance too. And we, you know, I've talked about delegation and white space and the importance of being able to step back and, and think, and, and, and you have to have balance. I mean, there's no CEO that's going to be born a CEO and die a CEO. There's, there's life on the outside of being a CEO or a commanding officer or a CEO or an executive. And so, so live your life accordingly, balance it, make sure, you know, you have time for your family and yourself. Because at the end of the day, those jobs go away and it's just a job. Uh, you can make a huge impact. You can make a big mm-hmm. difference. But at the end of the day, you know, you, hopefully you spent the time along the way. So, you know, your wife that you had when you started your career is the same wife at the end, if you're lucky enough. And that doesn't work out for everybody. But I think if you approach it with the goal of, you know, I want to I want to maximize um, my relationships throughout this process and spend the time when I can, um, I think you would okay. So I do. That's my hobby. I like to surf, amongst other things. But I love surfing. Um, and I, I love that when I surf, I can't bring my phone and I love that, you know, I can be out there and not worrying about, I mean, I can think about work and you certainly you do, but you're focused on things like the lineup and the currents and the sets coming in and the wind. And, and you also have time for big thoughts that maybe like, you know, it's kind of like when you have people that run or they meditate or do yoga, it's the same thing. You're able to think the big thoughts of, okay, we're, what should we be doing as a ship or what should we be doing as a company? You know, where, where, what are the big ideas that are going to make you successful? And to me, surfing allows me to do that. So that was, well, I thought it was a good title for all those great, other, all those other lessons. There's a great Wall Street Journal article about, about that. And they said, you know, the, you know, you bring, you bring everybody into a room and, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a value in solitude. Yeah. And you bring everybody in a room and everybody's throwing ideas. Okay. Put all your crazy ideas up on a board. You know, it causes confusion. Where do all the big ideas come from? For me, they come in the gym somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I jump rope a lot in the gym. I do a lot of CrossFit. That's where my ideas come from. For you, they come from maybe yeah. surfing. I think that maybe that concept needs to be understood uh, a little bit more. Yeah, and I think, 
and certainly as you get more senior, right, this is kind of goes back to the whole idea of delegation and micromanagement. You've got to provide that separation. And in some cases, it's physical separation. Get yourself on a surfboard or go to the gym or go running, put your running shoes on. So you're not doing the, the micromanagement. Then you can step away. And if you've ever followed me on a long, when I'm not surfing, if I'm running, you know, I'll run a couple of miles and you'll see me stop and I'll pull out my phone because I'm, I'm listening to it. And I'll, I'll have a note that it's like so important. I better write this note down because I'll forget it by the time I finish my run. I do that. My, you know, time. my wife's like, why do you, why do you like, she's she'll ride her bike or she'll, she'll like, why do you stop? I'm like, cause this is such a good idea. And I know myself well enough that if I finish this run without writing it down, I'll forget all about it. Yeah. And it I might still be a silly time. idea, but I know I do that all the time. I take my phone to the gym. It's off in the corner, but I start to think about yeah. stuff and I tap myself out. And a lot of times yeah. I just tap my, my, my blogs out in the gym oh, do you? Yeah. on my, on my phone. But you know, the rush to judgment thing in the day of social media, Fox news, one-sided communication. I have this conversation with people a lot. Do you, are you sure you don't understand the other side of the story? Are you yeah. just seeing with the media? Social media is a dangerous place. The media in general is a dangerous place. Yeah. Did you teach yeah, that? To your, I mean, it, it feeds you off the, your cruise. The dopamine effect, right? If, if, you know, the idea that news and knowledge is power and the idea is that, you know, the first to bring the news. So as you get more senior on aircraft carrier, I'm going to see your time's important and you need information to make decisions and, and people love to bring you information because it's, it's subconscious at times, right? They're, they're aware of something that's happened on the ship or off the ship and they want to bring it to your attention because, because there's loyalty there and there's trust. And it, and you understand, I understand why it happens. I used to say all the time, and again, it's probably something I learned from somebody else, I'm sure, but the truth is always in the third report. The idea being, you know, in the morning, I'd, I'd sit down with my, my XO and my command master chief, and we'd have coffee on the ship where we were. And it was kind of our time to sink and talk about the day and talk about what's going on. And, and I, you know, the, the master chief, who's generally up earlier is getting more information. He'd always come in and say, okay, here's what we, here's what's happened or we heard this report of a sailor doing this or this particular piece of engineering equipment's broken. Um, and you know, that's not only is it broken, but you're gonna, we're gonna have to pull in, it's gonna take six weeks to fix it. And so it'd be very easy, right? To pick up the phone, call the Chang, hey, what's going on? Call the Admiral. But you've only gotten like a snippet of information. You have to understand, you know, I used to remind myself, somebody is eager to get that information out because it's it's information, but it's not necessarily the truth. They're all, it's not backed by the facts. So I just, you know, we'd say, okay, truth in the third report. Let's see what happens. And then like an hour later, you get another report. Like, no, it's not a big deal. You know, we can fix this in the next hour. It's, you know, it's people are blown out of proportion. All right. So that's your counter to the first report of this piece of engineering equipment broken or the sailor getting in trouble. But by the time the third report came in, like later in the day, when people have a time to assess the information and the facts and, and actually look at the evidence, the truth was somewhere in the middle. Um, so that was a saying I always had and, you know, truths in the third report. So never overreact. Um, I mean, there could be times you're going to overreact. There can be times when, sir, we're about to run over. Okay. Well, you better, you better turn. Or if you're flying, as you know, in aviation, you're making quick reactions all the time based on information, sometimes limited information. But when you're talking on a large organization with all these processes in place and people and leadership, generally you're not, unless you're on the bridge, you're talking about aviation stuff. The things you're getting are not do not require instant decisions by you. You know, it's it's more you understanding the impact of the schedule and the mission. I just always try to give the time for the right people to get involved, to get their eyes on the equipment or talk to the sailor. And then, you know, by the time they it all panned out, you get to that final third report. And that was usually pretty close. So I was so I try to teach that even here in my nonprofit because people are eager to 
mm-hmm. bring me information about something that's happened to a, a veteran client or a problem with a facility. And, um, you know, you just kind of have to nod and say, okay, thanks. You know, let's, let me know. Let me know we find out. Let's figure and it out. Come back. And then by the end of the day, you've got a, you've got a pretty accurate report or, or much closer to the truth. And then you can make your decisions based on that. And, but yes, yeah. I think in today's society, we tend to want to push information out there unfiltered as quick as we can, because again, when you're not on your surfboard or you're, you know, you're not, you know, you, if you're staring at your phone all the time, you have access and you have to be careful with that. And I think organizations have to be careful. You and I, you know, we, we've probably both deployed when there was no internet and there was no email. Mm-hmm. So when you deployed in the Navy on a ship, you know, you had this very ancient system now where you type out messages and it'd be sent and you'd wait to get reports. Or if you're writing a message or a letter home, you write a letter to your wife and you'd number the letter mm-hmm. when you stamp the letter. So that way, when she got that letter, she knew the right order in case it got mixed up, but she probably got the letter six weeks after you mailed it. And so there was just, you know, it was a different environment. Now everything is so quick. We have internet, you have Wi-Fi on ships. Um, you know, people back in DC can monitor the status of your fuel system on an aircraft carrier thousands of miles away. And so we tend to to, to gravitate towards that, respond to the first report. And I think sometimes yeah. we do that in error um, from my experience. Yeah. But from a leadership standpoint, look, it's, it's, it's easy to come to, it's, you know, from, from somebody's cell phone camera, it's easy to come up with yeah. a, a very quick judgment. But yeah. then, like you said, the truth always lies in, in the third report. Let's, let's, yeah. let's, 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 let's hear what's going on the other side. What, what you saw off camera. Yeah. A little it's bit of patience. Good. That's it. <laughs> so the book is Simon and Schuster. Surf when yeah, you can. So, yeah. Atria books from Simon and Schuster. It comes out uh, June 13th. Okay. So a couple of weeks away uh, from when this recording is. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. I think um, hopefully hopefully it appeals to not just the folks in the military, but um, the broader audience that doesn't necessarily know what, what it's like to lead in the military or, or serve in the military. That was kind of, I was mindful of that when I wrote it. I think the six, kind of the six points, you know, that you, you sort of highlighted are very relevant. You know, whether it's business or personal or whatever, it's it's very relevant. To, to just Thanks, everyday yeah. life. So uh, yeah. yeah, well done. Well done. I'm looking forward to uh I'm looking forward to to seeing the release and I hope you have a lot of success with it. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate that, Craig. It's uh, again, it was fun to write and hope people enjoy it. Thanks for coming on. I know it's a yeah, it's a big it's a big ask on a Friday afternoon. I, I appreciate you coming on and uh talking about it a yeah. little bit. No sweat. It's always fun to talk about Navy, Naval Aviation, Craig. So I appreciate the opportunity and and uh and you know leadership's Leadership is, uh, it's, you know, it's something you're always learning, right? And I, I, even today, I'm learning more about leadership from what I do now. And so, okay, you know, I think it's important for folks to keep that open mind and 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 understand the, it's a lifelong, I guess, endeavor to, to learn to be a, the best leader you can. And I enjoy the, enjoy the chance to chat about it today. Awesome. Hey, thanks for coming on, Brett. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Craig. See you.